Professional wrestling is the one true sport. Other sports have their share of intense dramatic moments that nothing can compare with professional wrestling. Welcome to Wrestling History X, where two friends get together and talk about the story behind the matches. I'm Matt. And I'm Michael. Welcome to episode 39, Dusty Finishes Volume 1. This is a collection of all of Matt's hard work, and it's really a kind of, what is, what is it called when you, uh, it's a cliff notes to wrestling, but it's a cliff notes to wrestling that people cannot watch. Agreed. Yeah. It's a, it's a you, it's, you yeah. You can't find this. You stuff. might be able it to go out exist. there and find some random matches, clips, from, maybe. But you're not going to see. Yeah. A lot of these matches. This is kind of like the the lore. The or at least not in the dusty finishes that are going to be in this episode. <laughs> this is a collection of uh, the end of all of our episodes where Matt basically is spouting out the like Greek history. Of wrestling in a bizarre way. I, it's like, oh, these are the people that did the thing, and this is how they did it, and this is how we were told that they did it. Exactly. I, and I definitely want to throw a shout out to uh, the comic book history of wrestling. Oh, yeah. It's a great Amazing graphic book. novel. Amazing book. First and foremost. Yes. But it's fun to read, but also it's very informative as well, and I've kind of I've helped, used it to kind of yeah. help assist in in leading. Yeah, you you the way you used it for a spell of some of those dusty finishes, but you've gotten so much past that as well. And it's like, yeah, oh I'm, man, like I'm what the fuck? Like some of it, we started yeah. getting into the actual NWA champions. Yeah. Um, in the last in the last few episodes. So those are at the very; they'll be at the very end. But like yeah. literally, this episode just going to collect all. Of collect those. all. I'm literally gonna. We're putting all of them in there, because today, because obviously you're listen, If you're listening to this on the day it releases, Happy New Year's. Yes. First of all, thank it's you. 2020. Thank you. Thank me. Thank you, us. It's Barbara Walters. Anywhere. Is Barbara Walters still alive? It's a bad. It's a bad 2020. <laughs> oh, oh, okay. I get it. 2020 was good. I like that. But we wanted to give ourselves a little bit of a holiday break as well. Definitely. But we didn't want you to be without. No. So we're releasing this. Also, I think that a lot of the times at the end of a podcast, you're like, oh, well, this is that extra thing. But I think this extra thing is really good. And I think Matt has done a very good job with it. And I think that it is very good information. And it all in one place is a very dense like it's it's a very dense amount of information that you can really probably get a lot out of but you don't necessarily need to you can just take it for what it is i appreciate the kind words i don't think there's much more to say let's no i think we should just send it on over you've got probably like 30 minutes of dusty finishes Uh, there's at least probably at least 30 minutes because there's (laughs) 38 episodes worth of it totally So let's just go ahead and send it on to Jim Cornette and...
the dusty finish. Wrestling has been around as long as there have been things to fight over. The Bible and the Mahabharata both contain wrestling references. But to understand the origins of professional wrestling, we head to the American colonies. To fight fair, the two combatants would box. But they could agree to a rough-and-tumble match, and there were no rules to those. The objective, though, was the same. Disfigure or mutilate your opponent. Tearing or biting of the ears, lips, fingers, even genitals were all fair game. But the most popular way was gouging of the eyes. That all changed during the American Civil War. Traveling carnivals and their athletic shows would bring a change that its roots are still there in professional wrestling. The more impressive, the more people would pay and bet on them. This is where the idea of controlling the outcome became popular. Sometimes the opponent was in on it, sometimes they weren't. Submission holds and other tricks were used when they weren't. This period was the true beginning of the one true sport. The beautiful moment when a sport gave up some of its legitimacy for the sake of entertainment and money. Out of the carnival circuits emerged one of the most important and influential wrestlers of all time, Martin Farmer Burns. Born in Cedar County, Iowa in 1861, he began wrestling impromptu matches as early as eight years old. While many competitors during the time frame were just brute strength, Burns learned the strategies and techniques of catch wrestling. Catch wrestling relies more on submission and hooks, which was perfect for the 165-pound Burns. In 1895, Burns would defeat Evan Strangler Lewis to become the American heavyweight champion, holding the title for two years. He claimed to have wrestled more than 6,000 matches in his career, losing only seven times. Most of those matches were at most semi-legitimate, but Burns did understand the importance of showmanship. Using his impressive 20-inch neck, he would allow himself to be hung, all while whistling Yankee Doodle. But even as phenomenal as he was as a wrestler, his most important contribution was what he gave back. He would write what would become the Bible for all aspiring wrestlers in the early 1900s, called Lessons in Wrestling and Physical Culture. He would also personally train more than 1,600 wrestlers. That included such names as James Irvin Tootsmont, Ruddy Dusek, Earl Caddick, and Frank Gotch. At the age of 22... Is that the Gotch-style pile driver? That is the Gotch-style oh, pile driver. look at me. That's awesome. At the age of 22, Gotch lost a match to Burns in 11 minutes. It was seen as a decisive victory considering some matches went on for hours. But Burns saw the potential as well as Gotch's already famous toehold and offered to train him. Frank Gotch would find success in Iowa, including winning the American Heavyweight Championship in 1904, the same title Burns had won 10 years prior. Gotch's star was on the rise, as was wrestling's. The farther it moved away from the carnival origins toward legitimacy, the more popular it became. And as Gotch set his sights on becoming the first American to win the World Heavyweight Championship, it would just get bigger. But he would have to defeat the only man who had ever held the title. The Russian Lion, George Hackenschmidt. Born in 1877 in Estonia, Hackenschmidt was a physical specimen. He was capable of incredible feats of strength, such as lifting horses off the ground. He would use his formidable power in Greco-Roman wrestling, 
a style that didn't allow strikes or holds below the waist. He even created the bear hug. Hackenschmidt would make his debut in April 1898, defeating Paul Pons, who would go on to win a world championship just eight months later. Hackenschmidt would go around winning many of the competing world titles that would pop up over the times, making Greco-Roman wrestling an international sensation. In 1903, Hackenschmidt would go to England, where the newer style of catch-as-catch-can was all the rage. Catch wrestling allowed holds below the waist, which mitigated some of the Russian lion's power. But he proved to be determined and was soon recognized as world champion in England as well. In 1904, Hackenschmidt would defeat American champion Tom Jenkins under Greco-Roman rules, and then again in 1905 under catch rules in Madison Square Garden to be recognized as the first world heavyweight champion, regardless of style. But he had yet to face the man who would become his greatest rival, Frank Gotch. They were a study in contrast as Gotch was more versed in the carnival style while Hackenschmidt was a practitioner of the more refined Greco-Roman style. The feud had garnered international interest by the time the two would meet in Chicago in 1908. Hackenschmidt had always relied on his strength to put opponents away quickly, but Gotch embodied the slippery nature of carnival wrestling to evade him. Gotch would also make liberal use of headbutts and other questionable tactics, such as oiling his body up so he'd be even more slippery to the touch. The two would grapple for two hours before Gotch dropped Hackenschmidt and locked in his infamous toehold. Championship matches during this era were always contested two out of three falls, but Hackenschmidt would submit to the toehold and relinquish the title instead of continuing the match. Frank Gotch would elevate wrestling to even greater heights in America and abroad. He would defend his title versus Stanislaus Sabisco, Dr. Ben Roller, and Tom Jenkins over the next few years, before the Russian Lion would come looking for his rematch. George Hackensmith had left Chicago in 1908, taking his loss graciously to Frank Gotch. But by the time they met again in 1911, his tune had changed. Hackenschmidt was bad-mouthing and accusing Gotch of unsportsmanlike behaviors. Headed into the match, Hackenschmidt had been injured during training, aggravating his right knee where he had suffered a case of bursitis just a few years earlier. But Hackenschmidt declared himself fit to wrestle for his life, so the match went on as scheduled. In Comiskey Park in 1911, Gotch and Hackenschmidt would meet for the second time, and it was a very different contest than their first meeting. Gotch would win the first fall after only 16 minutes, and then secured the victory over the Russian Lion with the toehold once again. Hackenschmidt would retire soon after, and decades later, another wrinkle would be added to this feud. A wrestler by the name of Ad Santel would mention that he was helping train Hackenschmidt, but was paid $5,000 by Frank Gotch's camp to injure him. In the years that followed, more stories would emerge that tweaked the perception of how real professional wrestling had become. A pattern throughout history, someone would acknowledge the fixed nature as a way of romanticizing the past, only to realize that the reality is that as long as wrestling had existed, it had never been real, at least not completely. Even by the time that Frank Gotch and George Hackenschmidt had their second match, there were already rumors about the legitimacy of professional wrestling. 
but the appearance of legitimacy was a huge part of that appeal. The matches themselves, even if they weren't legit, were wrestled as if they were, which caused a slow, methodical pace, which in turn meant matches could last for hours with sudden anticlimactic finishes. Professional wrestling had yet to be optimized for maximum entertainment value. Frank Gotch would retire after holding the belt for five years, and in his time, no new stars had risen to take his place. On top of that, the United States entered World War I in 1917, depriving wrestling of funds, interest, and young men to compete. To survive, the one true sport would have to evolve. Professional wrestling began to struggle in the early 1900s, with Frank Gotch's retirement and World War I tightening the purse strings of many people. But climbing through the carnival circuit would be the next superstar, Ed Strangler Lewis. Lewis would break into wrestling at the age of 14. He would be one of the first to use the side headlock, a move that is seen as transitional in the current era, but in Lewis's time, the headlock was seen as a way to maneuver opponent's shoulders to the mat. In the hands of a talented person such as Lewis, the stranglehold was a match ender. Ed Strangler Lewis would meet Billy Sandow. Sandow had been a talented wrestler, but never material. But he had found that he excelled at something else, managing. While wrestling had been largely fixed for 30 years, it was crucial to have someone advocating for them as a talent wasn't always enough. Billy Sandow became that man for Ed Lewis. Sandow would be responsible for negotiating cuts of the house along with the finish of each match. As Lewis would rack up the wins, Sandow would start eyeing the biggest prize of them all, the World Heavyweight Championship. Ed Lewis, with Billy Sandow, joined forces in 1914 and became contenders for the world title. Sandow was known for running his mouth, while Lewis would wrestle an invasive, almost cowardly style. It was an early version of a heel-manager-wrestler dynamic that would be used over and over throughout history. In 1915, Joe Stetcher had defeated Earl Caddick with his body scissor pin to become champion. Ed Lewis and Stetcher had faced each other twice before. Once Lewis had fallen out of the ring and hit his head on the chair to be counted out. The other time, the two men faced each other in a match that lasted longer than four hours. But in 1920, Lewis would finally defeat Stetcher using his signature headlock seven times during a match. Reports of the match sound as dramatic as today's best matches, suggesting that the match was fixed. But even as effective as the Lewis-Sandow tandem was, they were still missing something. An innovator. But they would soon meet James Irvin Mont, better known as Toots because of his boyish face. Toots first came to wrestling through Farmer Brown's correspondence course. In early 1920, Ed Lewis and Billy Sandow were looking for a new training partner when they met James Mont. Toots claimed he was a better wrestler than Lewis and served well as a training partner, but his contributions went far beyond keeping Lewis in shape. The three men would come to be known as the Gold Dust Trio. It was a nod to how much money they would make, but also to their massive contributions to professional wrestling. One of these contributions would be to introduce a new style of wrestling 
to the world. Interest had waned in professional wrestling, but James Tootsmont had ideas to help change that. A new style. A slam-bang western style. Since George Hackenschmidt and Frank Gotch, wrestling had a blend of Greco-Roman and catch-as-catch-can. But Toots looked to bring in other influences such as carnival wrestling, crowd-pleasing theater, and the chaotic action unique to fights. James Mont would introduce new moves. These moves such as arm drags, slams, and suplexes. While less realistic than traditional grappling, were far more exciting to watch. The style was also influenced by boxing, utilizing striking. To say that Toots was a creative visionary is an understatement. He originated much of what wrestling is today. He led the transformation from sports that acted like a show to a show that acted like a sport. James Tootsmont was a creative visionary. He wasn't made significant by helping decide who won Ed Lewis's matches. It was that he understood the most important thing was how a match was won and what the manner of their victory said about the competitors. Toots would create the idea of the finish. By dictating the way matches ended, the Gold Dust Trio could optimize the drama and this practice forms the backbone of contemporary wrestling. The less legitimacy, the more the drama was enhanced, making the audience believe a challenger had a chance versus Lewis. But to do that, the challenger had to present a risk to the champion. The Gold Dust Trio had made audiences believe any challenger could defeat the champion. The way they did this was allowing the challenger to get some offense in during a match. But this presented a significant risk as it gave the challenger the chance to go into business for themselves. It was crucial to have the title on a talented grappler such as Ed Lewis. If things began to go south in the ring, he could turn the match into a legitimate contest, a shoot. And on occasion, when Lewis couldn't con get control, James Tootsmont was at ringside, ready to put people in their place. The Goldust Trio also brought about another massive change in professional wrestling. The introduction of time limits. Time limits would ramp up the pace, forcing the wrestlers to work faster, avoiding the drawn-out contests that had defined wrestling previously. It had also added another layer of drama, as wrestlers could no longer wait each other out indefinitely. Another innovation that the trio brought about was the count-out. Combining these two new rules served another extremely important role more ways for a match to end. A time limit draw or a double count out were sometimes used to make a young grappler look like a star or further a rivalry while still being able to keep the title on Ed Lewis and increase the anticipation for a rematch. With fixed matches, planned finishes, exciting moves, and innovative match outcomes, the Gold Dust Trio began to build new stars. But what was the point of new stars if Ed Lewis was their guy? In the early days, promoters could pack a venue with a single heavily promoted match. But by the 1920s, with the waning interest in wrestling, a single match wasn't enough. So the Gold Dust Trio began to promote entire cards, not just matches. Events were still anchored around those title defenses, but the other matches featured those very wrestlers that Ed Lewis had legitimized with the time limit draws 
and double countouts. With more variety in wrestlers, the Goldust Trio made the next big step, booking bigger venues and making more money. As the Goldust Trio would begin to book bigger cards, they would need more wrestlers to fill those spots. The trio would find young men with legitimate wrestling backgrounds and competitive natures. Billy Sandow would test prospective grapplers, and if they passed, he would sign them to an exclusive contract. They would then go to James Mont to learn effective holds, hooks, and other finishes. When they were ready, they would face Ed the Strangler Lewis, the world champion. They wouldn't win, of course, but they'd emerge looking considerable and take up other spots on the card, and sometimes even main event when Lewis wasn't available. To make it to the top of the Gold Dust Trio's promotion, you had to be a legit grappler, as they needed to be able to trust them that they could take care of themselves if someone went into business for themselves. But occasionally they would take on less talented grapplers if they were charismatic and of a marketable ethic background. Was the Gold Dust Trio on the front line of di diversification in wrestling? Probably not, but having grapplers from European ethnicities would bring in the immigrant communities to buy tickets, which in turn brought in the money. In 1925, one of the many wrestlers that the Gold Dust Trio had trained, Stanislaus Zabisco, would turn a championship match into a shoot. He would double-cross the trio by winning the championship from Wayne Munn. Munn was a former football player, but not a legitimate grappler, so Zabisco took advantage. Zabisco's betrayal was done in order to help put the belt back on Joe Stetcher, who had earlier split from the Gold Dust Trio's camp. However, three years later, Stetcher would lose the belt back to Lewis. This betrayal was the first of many rifts that began to form within the trio and their crew. The first riff in the Gold Dust Trio's camp was a title change, but those can always be won back. But when family gets involved in business, power struggles ensue. Billy Sandow's brother Max Bowman would start whispering in his ear and they began to distance themselves from Tootsmont and Ed Strangler Lewis. Sandow and Bowman would find new talent to develop and promote, but the biggest thing that transpired was the wrestling world began to splinter into regional fiefdoms without the dominant influence of the Gold Dust Trio. With the Gold Dust Trio broken up, Tootsmont chose Philadelphia to begin again with the promoter Ray Fabian. Philly was a big city in its own right, but also close enough to make inroads into New York City. Mont would choose the Golden Greek Jim Londos as his new champion. Londos wasn't as talented as Ed Strangler Lewis, but had good looks and an incredible physique. Londos would face hideous and unappealing wrestlers to maximize those assets, becoming one of the most popular wrestlers, eventually winning the world title in 1938. Mott would have difficulties breaking into New York, as it was controlled by promoter Jack Curley, who had helped orchestrate the Stanislaus Zabisco betrayal of the trio. But over time, Curley realized the draw of Jim Londos, and he, Mont, and another New York promoter, Jack Pfeiffer, would join forces. Jack Curley, Jack Pfeiffer, and Toots Mont would draw tens of thousands of fans to catch a glimpse of Jim Londos, even with the onset of the Great Depression. But a contractual dispute saw Londos leave for a rival group. Things were finally smoothed over and new alliances were soon established, but Pfeiffer was left on the outside looking in. 
so he went to the papers. Giving an explosive interview to the New York Daily Mirror, Jack Pfeiffer exposed wrestling, admitting what few would acknowledge. Wrestling wasn't a legitimate sport. Several papers picked up on the story and began to point out that the trickery that was being used. This revelation caused the fan base to contract just as it had decades prior. Even though attendance would suffer after the article in the New York Daily Mirror, wrestling would continue. Toots Mott would begin to take over the New York area with the passing of Jack Curley and solidifying relationships with multiple promoters and managers. Mott would also begin to train future stars such as Antonio Roca, who was beloved by the Hispanic and Italian immigrants. Another trainee would be legendary Canadian grappler Stu Hart, who would become a renowned trainer and patriarch of one of wrestling's greatest families. Mont's most important alliance, though, would be with a promoter whose family would have more influence on professional wrestling than any other in history, Jess McMahon. Promoters across the country had followed the examples set forth by the Gold Dust Trio and Jack Curley. Business was beginning to pick up in the wake of World War II. By 1948, Toots Mont had brought wrestling back to Madison Square Garden for the first time in 12 years. The headliner by this time was a pioneer in creating the arrogant wrestling heel, Gorgeous George. George was a proud, defiant villain and drew massive crowds, hoping to see him humbled. Even Muhammad Ali credits George as the inspiration behind his more combative public persona. But 1948 also saw an even more earth-shattering event, the founding of the NWA. In 1930, the National Boxing Association had created the National Wrestling Association with hopes to begin regulating professional wrestling. But the title they recognized wasn't even the same title that Ed Lewis and other luminaries had held. There was no legitimacy, so smaller promotions wouldn't even recognize it. The regional promotions also had no say in who held it or hope of booking the champion Jim Londos so they would just create their own titles. With every promotion claiming to have a world champion, it was damaging and made every title seem not legitimate. Something needed to be done if wrestling was going to continue to thrive. In 1948, Paul Pinky George, Sam Muchnick, Orville Brown, and a group of other promoters settled on a solution. Multiple territories would vote on and share a single world champion. Together, they formed the National Wrestling Alliance. At its height, the National Wrestling Alliance had territories spread out across the United States, Canada, Mexico, and Japan. While each territory recognized the NWA World Heavyweight Champion, they were free to promote shows as they wished within their territory. Some of the more prominent territories at formation would include Des Moines, Columbus, Detroit, Kansas City, and St. Louis. Others that would join the NWA over time were Minneapolis, Montreal, Toronto, Tokyo, Florida, Georgia, and North Carolina. But the biggest question was, who would be their first champion? On July 14, 1948, Orville Brown would defeat Sonny Myers to be recognized as the first ever NWA World Heavyweight Champion. Orville Brown, born in 1908, grew up on a farm outside of 
Kiawa, Kansas. In the late 1920s, Ernest Brown, a former manager, convinced Orville he had a future in wrestling. Orville would go undefeated for 71 matches when he first began. Orville would impress many with his wrestling skills in matches with former champions such as Jim Londos and Ed Strangler Lewis. After Brown won the title, he immediately set about defeating world champions from other promotions as a way of unifying the titles. One of the most significant matches was against Frank Sexton on March 15, 1949. Sexton held the American Wrestling Alliance Championship, which was considered the second most important title in the country. But tragedy would hit November 1st of that year. Brown would be involved in a car accident that forced him into early retirement. In existence for a little more than a year, the NWA needed a champion. They would look north to a man who would carry the NWA for the next seven years, Lou Thez. After Orville Brown's injury, the NWA knew they needed to find a new champion. The board of directors decided on Lou Thez. Thez was a promoter in the Minnesota area and also the holder of the National Wrestling Association's championship, which meant the two competing titles would be unified. Lou Thez, born in 1916, grew up in St. Louis, Missouri, the son of a shoemaker. He would make his professional debut in 1932 and soon started learning the art of hooking, the ability to stretch your opponents with painful holds. From Ed Strangler Lewis. Thez was considered a throwback, having no love for gimmicks. But he would be an innovator using moves such as drop kicks, German suplexes, power bombs, and the Thez Press. Thez would take over the title on November 27, 1949, and would continue to unify titles from across the country. On May 21, 1952, Thez would defeat Baron Michelle Leone for the LA Olympic Auditorium Championship and would be considered the undisputed champion. Luthez would keep the NWA World Heavyweight Championship for 2,300 days. But other wrestlers and promoters would begin to become frustrated at the lack of change and availability of the champion. Luthez was the NWA champion for over six years and kept a very busy schedule bouncing around to all of the member territories. This schedule and the booking of the champion was one of the most important duties of the NWA president. Sam Mushnick was the second president of the organization and would have the longest reign. Mushnick, born in 1905, grew up in St. Louis, formed a friendship with Tom Pax, the Midwest's top sports promoter. He would serve as Pax's right-hand man for nine years until he left to form his own organization. When he first started, he was forced to use veterans way past the prime as Pax still employed the top talent, including Luthez. But after helping form the NWA, Mushnick's promotion would begin to outdraw and would eventually buy out Pax's promotion. In 1950, Sam Mushnick would be named the new president. The presidency was difficult as it was an extremely political job. Every promotion wanted the champion all of the time. While they were all working together, the political jockeying was constant, but Mushnick would help the NWA become the dominant governing body in pro wrestling. Mushnick would end his second term in 1960, but then would be reinstalled as president three years later 
and serve another 12 years till 1975 before finally retiring. He would be inducted into the NWA, Wrestling Observer Newsletter, and Professional Wrestling Hall of Fames for his incredible work to build upon the NWA. But even with all the good Bushnick did, there was controversies along the way. Luthez had held the title for over six years until a fateful night in Toronto. On March 15, 1956, Whipper Billy Watson would defeat Thez in front of 15,000 fans. God, that's so many people. At the Maple Leaf Gardens. Billy Watson, born in 1915, grew up in Ontario, making his professional debut in 1940, and was a rising star in the Toronto scene. He would cement his status as a main eventer when he won the British Empire title in 1942. Billy Watson would be inducted by the Professional Wrestling and Wrestling Observer Newsletter Hall of Fames, for his accomplishments, which also include training such wrestlers as Rocky Johnson. Whipper would travel North America defending the title while Thez would take several months off to recuperate from an ankle injury. But Lou Thez would soon get his rematch. Whipper Billy Watson would be champion for 239 days until he met Lou Thez in a rematch in St. Louis, Missouri. Thez would then hold the title well into 1957 when the first cracks in the NWA began to show through. Luthez would face Eduard Carpentier on June 14th in Chicago. Carpentier would be awarded the title when Thez could not continue the match due to a back injury, but some promotions would recognize the title change while others wouldn't. The idea was to build a rematch of the disputed title holders. The rematch would happen, but Thez would win by disqualification further clouding the situation. Carpentier's manager, Eddie Quinn, would leave the NWA and take his champion with him. Boston, Omaha, and Los Angeles would continue to recognize Carpentier while the rest of the NWA would recognize Luthez. The world title would never be undisputed again. Edouard Carpentier, born in 1926 in France, would join the French resistance during World War II. He would move to Montreal, Quebec in 1956. Carpentier would become a fan favorite using acrobatic leaps from turnbuckles and other aerial moves. Carpentier would win a disputed contest versus Luthez in 1957. He would be considered the world heavyweight champion in many territories, including Omaha. This helped lead to the split of the NWA and the creation of the AWA. After his retirement, Carpentier would operate a wrestling school and become a commentator for the French version of superstars that WWF would produce. Carpentier would also be inducted into the Professional Wrestling and Wrestling Observer Newsletter Hall of Fames. Edouard Carpentier and Luthez are tied in history to the moment that wrestling became complicated once again. Luthez was again the NWA World Heavyweight Champion even if it was disputed. On November 14, 1957, Thez would be defeated by Dick Hutton in Toronto, Ohio to become the fifth NWA world champion. Dick Hutton, born in Amarillo, Texas in 1923, would join the Army and be a veteran of World War II. He would also attend Oklahoma A&M, now better known as Oklahoma State, where he would be a three-time NCAA wrestling champion. He would make his professional debut in 1952 after being trained by Ed Strangler Lewis 
and would wrestle all over the world. Dick Hutton would be champion for 421 days. The world championship was now disputed. After Luthez and Eduard Gar- Carpentier each claimed to be champion, many of the different promotions had to decide who their champion was. Carpentier would end up losing to three other men, Killer Kowalski, Freddie Blassie, and Vern Gagne, over the next few years. Of those three, the loss to Gagne was the most significant. Vern Gagne, born in Minnesota in 1926, would enlist in the Navy. After his time in the armed forces, he would return to the University of Minnesota and capture two NCAA titles. Gagne would start his career in 1949 in Texas, and within a few years was the NWA junior heavyweight champion. In 1958, after Gagne defeated Carpentier, he tried to work things out with the NWA to bring the belt back, but the NWA didn't want Gagne as their champion. So a storyline was put into place that if the NWA champion didn't defend his title versus Gagne, Vern would be recognized as world champion by default in the Minnesota Territory. That match never happened. And by August 1960, his territory left the organization to form the American Wrestling Association, and Vern Gagne was the new AWA world champion. For his accomplishments and considerable works in the wrestling world, Gagne would be inducted into the professional wrestling WCW, WWE, and Wrestling Observer Newsletter Hall of Fames. Dick Hutton had defeated Luthez, and the world championship was a disputed title. But the NWA kept rolling. In St. Louis, Missouri, on January 9, 1959, Pat O'Connor would become the sixth NWA world heavyweight champion. Pat O'Connor, born in New Zealand in 1924, was a sheep herder growing up until he joined the New Zealand Royal Air Force. Before entering the world of professional wrestling, he was an amateur wrestler, winning the New Zealand Heavyweight Championship in 1949 and 1950. By 1955, O'Connor was working in Toronto and made it all the way to the top of the tower, winning the British Empire Heavyweight Championship. After winning the NWA World Heavyweight Championship, he was also recognized as the AWA World Champion. But he never defended the title and was stripped of it. Pat O'Connor would be inducted into the Professional Wrestling, NWA, Wrestling Observer Newsletter, and WWE Hall of Fames for his accomplishments. He would hold the NWA title for two and a half years until a nature boy came calling. But a new challenger by the name of Buddy Rogers would step forward in June of 1961. O'Connor and Rogers would face each other in front of 38,000 fans at Comiskey Park in Chicago, which would be a North American professional wrestling record for over 20 years. Billed as the match of the century, the two out of three falls match, came down to the final fall. O'Connor would miss a drop kick, allowing Buddy Rogers to become the seventh NWA world champion. Rogers, born in 1921 in New Jersey, was the son of German immigrants. He would grow up wrestling at his local YMCA, and his professional debut would come in 1939, and he would soon have a victory over Ed Strangler Lewis. His first title would come while working in Houston, winning the NWA Texas Heavyweight Championship four times in his tenure, 
once even from Luthez. Buddy Rogers would evolve his gimmick to use his flashy look, great physique, and bombastic personality to become the Nature Boy. For his many contributions to the world of wrestling, Rogers had been inducted into the NWA, Professional Wrestling, WWF, and Wrestling Observer Newsletter Hall of Fames over the years. Nature Boy Buddy Rogers would hold the belt for almost two years until a former champion challenged. The result would lead to the biggest fracture of all in the NWA. The NWA decided it was time for Buddy Rogers to no longer be the world champion. Rogers was reluctant to drop the title, but the NWA put safeguards in place to ensure Rogers' compliance. The NWA threatened to give Buddy Rogers $25,000 deposit for the championship belt to charity. They also had Lou Thez challenge for the belt, as he could shoot on the Nature Boy if needed. And lastly, they made the match a single fall, instead of the traditional two out of three falls, making it even harder for Buddy Rogers to double cross. Thez would win the title on January 24th, 1963, in Toronto. But the plan to protect the title backfired, creating the opportunities in the Northeast. Next week! I hope you enjoyed all those, because I, I had fun doing them. Yeah. No, they were great. It's going to be another clip show next week, but a little bit different. Next week, we're going to do Best of Wrestling History X, Best of the 80s. Kind of like... Not like there's so many good matches we watched or matches that we took a lot out of, but these were kind of the ones that we would show to people that are not wrestling fans, right? That's kind of some of them. I of, mean, some of them are just the best matches. Well, yeah, there's they're mostly the best matches, but there's some that we would definitely show someone to be like, hey, this hey, is hey, this is why well, we enjoy wrestling. This is what wrestling can be. But it looks like uh, we're probably gonna cover like six or seven matches and literally we just there will be new there will be new stuff in there so don't skip them don't skip the no, episode no. but and yeah i can't blame you if you haven't listened to all of them and if you haven't listened to all of them then this is a good reason yeah. for you to possibly catch up on what our favorites are and we may even throw some are we gonna do the some other top are we stuff do that the, we enjoy the, uh, the og i quit match the og i quit match who, who is it Oh, not Tully. No, no, not, not Tully and, and... Tully and Magnum. No, no. No, that one's not in there. It's a great match. Wouldn't consider just... it one of our favorites. But we, yeah, we're kind of looking at it from a different lens. Because we both hated that match when it started. Kind of. But please come and join us uh, for a trip through the 80s, because we're, we're done with the 80s. I if, know. If we haven't... I mean, I've mentioned it a couple times. I know. But next week... I feel kind of weird about it. The week after that is the first show of 1990. So, like, in a little bit less than a year, we've got through the 80s. Yes. You know how long it's going to take us to go through the 90s? I don't know exactly how long, but we will finish 92. No, we'll, we'll be into 92 in a, about the same amount of time it took us to get through the 80s. I, I'm, I think I just contracted cancer. <laughs> Send money. Uh, our Patreon Yeah, I have cancer. You should probably help me stop this cancer no just kidding we don't have a patreon no we do if you want us to get one we'll send us an email or i think i think i think we give enough just um venmo me if you like this show or if you like any of our shows please go out there rate and review us on itunes stitcher google play or wherever you find your podcasts at 
You can always email us at WrestlingHistoryX at gmail.com. I forgot to mention the music, but I played... So we have two pieces of music that we play every week, technically. But they're covered up by our other bumpers. So I was like, I'll play them this week, just just as fun. So our intro music this week was a song by Audio Adrenaline called New Body, which is also our the music that's behind our Dusty Finish bumper. Okay. And then our music behind Smarking It Up is called Bell Bottoms by the John Spencer Blues Explosion. Oh, nice. John Spencer's cool. Yeah. It's a very cool song, and you're probably hearing that right, right now. Right So, if you're... Uh, if you like either one of those songs, go out there, support those bands. And uh, you can always hit us on Twitter. That's where I was at. Uh, you can find us at WrestlingHistoX. That's Wrestling H-I-S-T-O-X. We'll talk to you next week. <laughs>